0: Alright, welcome to our Facebook Live, people. We are in Romans chapter 9. Okay, Romans chapter 9. Now, when I began preaching in Romans now several months ago, uh, I remember sharing with you that I had heard from somebody that I kind of cut my teeth on listening to a preacher that said that if a church preaches through Romans, it will explode with growth. okay. And then I heard somebody else share with me that they were in a church that preached through Romans and split at the end of it. So let's do a little math. I haven't seen division yet. We haven't split in half. Um, I also haven't seen multiplication. We haven't exploded with growth. Uh, addition and subtraction maybe a little bit here and there as God has willed it. But what I have seen, I do believe, is by the grace of God that we have all grown in our faith. As I've studied through some really, really hard passages, the hardest preaching I've ever done, I have learned so... By by the time I came out of the woods, I realized, boy, he taught me a lot of stuff there. And uh, so in Romans chapter 9, again, has caused a tremendous amount of controversy in the church throughout the centuries. And by his grace, I think we've gotten this far without a lot of people getting upset. I think people are really... Uh, growing in the Lord. So I trust that today's message would have the same result and just continue to strengthen our faith and uh, help us to understand God better, which is what it really is all about. And I'll tell you this pastorally uh, before we even get into this passage. If this passage does raise some objections and questions, which it will, Paul anticipates it. That's why he says what he says. Um, But if you Humble yourself before God and you accept what God is saying to us here. Once you do that, and I've seen it in my family's life, my own life, pastorally, this will bring you a tremendous amount of comfort and peace in your life. Once you just accept this as God has revealed himself to us. So I think it will be a real blessing. But let's go to Romans chapter 9. We'll begin in verse 18. So we sort of get uh, caught up just a little bit with why this objection would come to a person's mind. I think the simplest way to capture what we're studying at this point is, <clears throat> after chapter 8, Paul just going on and on about the wonderful blessings that we enjoy as Christians. I think he gets, has a sobering moment all of a sudden realizing that his people, these Jews that he's writing to, Jewish Christians, they represent a small remnant of the Jewish nation. Most of the Israelites who were given the promises and the covenants of God and were chosen by God, most of them had rejected Jesus, the Messiah, when he came. So at the beginning of chapter 9, then Paul is like, Oh my, how do you explain that? How do you even understand that? And then he goes to the defense of God. It's not as if God has failed, God's word has not failed. And then he goes on to describe how it's God has a purpose for choosing all of the people that he does. He chose Abraham first and Isaac and Jacob and he goes through the line. But then in that process of choosing a remnant out of all the people that deserve his wrath because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, out of that all, because of his mercy, he cho- chooses some but not others. And that immediately raises what question in our mind that we dealt with last week? That's not, that's just not fair, God. Well, then he answers us. You don't want fair. God is merciful. And now as he explains that, what we studied last week, then we come to verse 18. So look at verse 18. So then, then I, we, we left it at this last week. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Now that raises number one on our outline, another human objection. Everybody feels this, everybody goes through this, everybody asks this question at some point or at many points throughout our lives. The human objection is, okay, and and this is, it's a deeper question than the one we dealt with last week. It's a little bit deeper than it's not fair. Now he's saying, now I've explained to you how it is fair then the next objection, the next layer down is, wait a minute now, okay, if I accept that, if it's God's will, if it's God's purpose, if it's God's choice, if God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires, how can that hardened person then be held responsible? How can that, that hardened person be to blame and deserving of God's wrath? And what we're saying to God at that point is, that's just not right. That is wrong. Right? This is the dilemma that's at the heart of the tension that's created as we stand between those two pillars of the St. Louis Arch, that God is absolutely sovereign. It's his choice, his purpose, his will to have mercy on whomever he chooses to have mercy and harden whomever he wants to harden. That's clearly what we're being taught here. So that's on the one side, but then on the other side is this. How can you hold them responsible then? I feel the, I feel the teeth of that argument, don't you? Every time I read this, every time I study it, I, I still wrestle within my heart with this very issue. And that's caused all the tension in the church throughout the ages that split, split churches, split denominations, created new denominations. But remember, we're not going to study this today, Romans chapter 9, as if this is just a theological debate over sovereignty of God and free will. That's not what this is about. This is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to a church filled with people like you and me, as I've said over and over and over again. We've got to remember, this was intended to edify, to build up the church, to foster unity and love in the church and and, and an accurate understanding of who God is. And that's what we're after this morning. And once you know who God is, you will be at peace. So, let's move on then. Now, Now, get this. You would think, if God wanted us to have an explanation about how you fit these two truths that are taught in Scripture together, this is his opportunity to explain it to us, isn't it? Please, Lord, give us some help here. And he doesn't. And I think because we cannot understand it. So when we get to this place at which... Aren't we then in danger of believing something wrong about God, creating a God in our own image, splitting from the rest of the church, judging everybody else as wrong, starting a new group? Yeah. So he doesn't doesn't give us an explanation. He gives us a correction. Our human objection is met with a divine correction. Look at verse 20 on the contrary as we object as we voice that objection god responds to us with on the contrary now watch the emphasis in this little verse he says who are you o man who answers back to god o man man and god are the emphasis in the in the sentence what's he doing What's he saying to us? He's saying, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And then he gives us this really obvious, logical illustration. Think about it for two seconds. Continue on in verse 20. The thing molded, will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? I mean, that's ridiculous silliness. He continues on. Or does the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another vessel for common use? It's a rhetorical question. What's the answer? Well, yeah, I mean, just use your head. He has absolute, complete, 100% control. And, you know, we think, I just thought about this as I was studying through it this week, is we think, like, there's a huge difference between clay and the potter who molds the clay, right? I mean, look at the, and there is. And that's why the answer to the question is so obvious. But think about the difference between you and God. You, oh man, me, oh human. There's a much bigger difference between me and God, than there is between a lump of clay and a human being. I mean, we're made out of clay. We're, we're both created matter that God created. But God, as we sang earlier, is holy. He's in a category all by himself. And so this is, if you think about, if the potter and the clay thing makes sense, then the difference between us and God should make that much more sense. And we should see how wrong it is for us to object to God when God does something. So he gives us this uh, logical illustration. The creator has the power. The creator has the right. The creator has the prerogative to do whatever he desires based on his will, his purpose, his choice. After all, he is who? He is God. Now, what, what God has basically done is stop the discussion. And sometimes God does that. Now, does that mean that God does not allow us to ask questions? Does God get mad at us? Let's just say, we're, let's meet uh, Thursday night for an hour and just dig into this a little bit further. Would he object to that? Is he just saying, hey, close your mouth, stop asking questions? That's not what he is doing. God is not opposed to us asking questions. He doesn't mind it if we discuss some of these things. God is not insecure. God's not threatened by our questions. So he's not just saying, well, just be quiet because I. I'm impatient and I just don't want to go there and you wouldn't understand it anyway. That he doesn't mind us asking questions. In fact, Paul asks a question. He, in verse 22, Paul is asking a very insightful question. He leads us right to the edge of the fog of the, you know, where these two things join together. He brings us into the fog just a little bit here, I think. Look at verse 22. What if God, he's kind of posing a question, I think, if I understand this at all. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, who's he talking about there? What's he referring back to? Look at verse 17. Keep your finger here and look at verse 17. The scripture says to Pharaoh, he's talking about Pharaoh. Scripture says to Pharaoh, the, per- the reason I raised you up, for this very purpose, I made you stand. I kept you around for ten plagues. I didn't destroy you right away. The reason I raised you up, it was to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And we covered that last week. That's what Paul's referring back to. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, verse 22, and to make his power known, what if he did endure with much patience vessels, of wrath prepared for destruction. So I think what he's getting at here is, so everybody go with me. Now, I'm I'm into the clouds a little bit, so we want to be careful. I want to be careful not to say something that isn't good or true. But go with me for a moment. I think this is what Paul's kind of doing. Into the fog just a little bit and ask the question, think about God before he created anything. If God's desire was to make his power known, to declare his name, what would he have to do? He'd have to create something, right? And he couldn't just create stars and dust and clay. He'd have to create a being like us. We're getting kind of philosophical here, and I want to be careful. But Paul's opening this door. He's saying, come up here in the clouds, think about it a little bit with me. He'd have to create a being, like a human being, who was created in his image, who had rationality, and could appreciate beauty, and could have all, you know, many of the, the uh, communicable attributes of God in us as well. He'd have to do that in order to demonstrate his Power so that human beings, somebody who could appreciate it, could look at the stars and the sun and the moon and the sunrises and everything and appreciate it and see God's glory in it. So he chose to do that, and he chose to create human beings. How could he display his wrath? Because sometimes we ask the question, well, why didn't God just create, why didn't he just make Adam and Eve like we're going to be in our glorified state where we couldn't sin? Why didn't God do that? If God wanted to display his wrath, verse 22, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, how can he do that? He'd have to make a human being who could appreciate all of his beauty and his goodness, but also one that was capable of sinning, and then that human being would have to sin. And then God would have, to, God would have an opportunity to display his wrath. How else would we know that God is a God of wrath? That God is a God of justice. That God, in his holiness, cannot tolerate sin. How could he have displayed that? How could you even know that if you hadn't sinned and been a sinner? And that others who are sinners who do not come to faith in Christ are vessels of wrath. How could we know that if God wouldn't have done it the way that he, done, he did it? Paul's just asking the question. I'm just asking the question. So I think, what, it, what doesn't that get to this? There is a higher purpose for God's, in God's purpose and God's plan to display His power and His glory and His, demonstrate His wrath. He, He chose to do it. This is how He chose to do it. And God is God. I think that's His, His point here. So so God does not forbid us to ask, ask that question. If here, it all boils down to our attitude. If our attitude is, Lord, I don't I get this. I mean, I've prayed this prayer hundreds of times. I'm sure you have too. Father, this doesn't make any sense to me. I don't get it. How could this be? And we can ask that question for a while. Do you remember when Moses was called by God and God was going to send him to Tell Pharaoh to let his people go, remember? Did Moses say, yeah, let's go? What did Moses do? He immediately started asking questions. Did God allow him to do that? At least five times. uh, I can't talk. Uh, Why me? Uh, What do I say? And God just patiently answers up to a point. Then he says, stop, go. And he does the same thing with us. So I don't want to spend much time on verse 22 and asking philosophical questions that we can really ultimately not answer. But I think we can say that God has a purpose. This alludes to a purpose that God has that we cannot understand. And it's a bigger purpose that that does justify all of the sin and all of the punishment and hell and all that whole part of the puzzle is justified in God because there is a higher purpose. And what is the higher purpose? Some Christians come up the free will defense. I, I won't get technically into this. Some people think the highest purpose is that God wanted us to be free. My only problem with that, if you hold that view, I still love you. Um, we can talk about it maybe. But that's not what the Bible says. What's the highest purpose you find in the Bible? To demonstrate His power, to declare His name, and to be glorified, to show His glory, and you're going to see that. We'll come back to that in a moment. But let me ask you this question: Oh, wouldn't it be great if the Bible provided a case study? Uh, verses nineteen and twenty. There's so much there. You will say to me then, why does God find fault? For who resists His will? That that's the human objection and it just stops there, one verse, then the, the answer is in one verse. On the contrary, who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? So that's the nutshell question and answer right there. Wouldn't it be great if there was a place in the Bible that we could go to where we saw that fleshed out in the life of a human being who dealt with all of those questions because they had put been put under a whole bunch of stress, and then we get to see this the predicament and the answer from God. Wouldn't that be great? Do you think there's a there's a book in the Bible like that? What is it? The book of Job. Thank you. Every commentary I studied, every single source I looked into throughout this entire study, I don't even know how to explain this. Not one of them mentioned Job. And I just can't believe it. Because I too have dealt with this objection and I've argued with people and I've done it badly at times and over the years trying to defend God through all this whole discussion of how can he be sovereign and still hold people responsible. And every time I explain it, there's only two places in the Bible you go, Proverbs, or, uh, Romans 9 and Job. So I want you to come with me. We're going to do a really, really quick study of a few verses in Job. So if you're a person who turns in your Bible, go to Job. Um, If you're turning in your Bible and you're not sure exactly where it is, just open it up about in the middle. And if you've come to Isaiah or Jeremiah, you've gone a little too far, go backwards a little bit. Try to get into Psalms. Once you find Psalms, which is a big book, the book just before Psalms is Job. So turn to Job. All right. I'll try to be brief and I'll try to be succinct, but still see some really, really important stuff. So we're still in this insightful question. We're asking some questions. So in the Job chapter 1, there's something that goes on in heaven that Job is never even made aware of, to our knowledge. Look at verse 6, chapter 1. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Job doesn't know that's going on. Job's just living out his life, trying to be a good guy, he's got a beautiful family, owns a whole bunch of property and animals and stuff. He doesn't know that there's something going on behind the scenes, that God has a, has a bigger plan in mind. So Satan, verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, where do you come from, from roaming around the earth? Verse 8, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on earth, blameless, upright, fearing God, turning from evil. And Satan basically says, well, yeah, you've given him everything. Of course he's going to worship you. Let me take some stuff away from him. And God gives Satan permission to attack Job. And the rest of the chapter, all of his animals die It ends up his family's throwing a party, and uh, verse 18, while he was still speaking, the person who came and told him that all of his livestock, everything was, and his servants, everybody was wiped out. While he he was still speaking, he says to Job, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners, and it fell on the young people, and all of them died. I alone have escaped to tell you. So at this point, what's Job going to do? Hit Everything's wiped out. His children, they prayed for him regularly. And then Job arose. This is how he responded. Job arose, he tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped. And he said those famous words, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Perfect response. Hard, but right. Chapter 2 Same thing happens. Satan appears before God. God says, Look at my servant Job. He says, Well, sure, You, you didn't affect him. And, you know, he knows, Satan knows that all of us human beings are so self-centered. that. I mean, it's bad when bad things happen to other people, even the ones we love. But when it happens to us, that's another story. And he says, let me me have at him. So God gives him permission. Verse 6, 2 verse 6. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. You can attack his health, but you can't kill him. So Satan went out from there, did the, you know, Job is just inflicted with boils. He's just miserable, sitting in the ashes, scraping his itching sores all over his body. Absolute miserable. His wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? Job still remains strong through all of that. And so he says to his wife, uh, verse 10, he said to her, you speak like one of the foolish women speak. Shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. This is incredible that he had that kind of faith in God, that he was that righteous of a person. So now look at verse 11. Three friends come. They heard of all of Job's adversity. And so they're Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they made an appointment together. I'm in the end of Verse 11 to come and to sympathize with him and comfort him. Great. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance, they saw Job. They didn't even recognize him. They raised their voices and they wept, and each one of them tore their robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with Job for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him. He was in such grief and pain, they weren't going to correct Job's theology, they were just going to be with him, sympathizing. Everything's great so far. For they saw that his pain was very great. Everything's good. Look at chapter 3. Here's where things go wrong. This is what Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 9. Afterwards, Job, and we kid about this, but what does it say next? What did Job do? Chapter 3, verse (laughs) 1. He opened his mouth, and everything went downhill from there. So then begins from chapter 3. Now switch. Go all the way back to chapter 38. For, thir- for 35 chapters or so, what we have is a group of people like us going up into the clouds and trying to talk about and figure out what we cannot understand. And all you've read through Job, haven't you? When I'm reading through Job, what do you experience? You, it's like, yeah, that's true. That's really kind of a good point. Oh, that's, something's wrong with that one. It's this back and forth of a bunch of people like us talking about predestination and free will is what it, it's like. It's everybody pontificating and waxing eloquent and theological about this and that and comparing scripture passages and accusing each other and of different motives. And it's all this 35 chapters of this stuff, just blah, 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 is what I get out of it. And then it comes to, and God is just allowing it to happen. But now look at, now what's God's answer to all of that discussion? All of those questions. Look at chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And he begins to ask a series of rhetorical questions, which means that the answers are obvious. And I can't read any of this without Sounding sarcastic, and I don't want it to be me inserted here, but I think God's being really sarcastic. And He just starts asking something like, uh, if you do, if you, I looked up all the, I counted all the question marks. And then, but then I saw sometimes there were three questions asked before the question mark came. So there's about a hundred questions here that God asked Job. And as he asks them, he just keeps putting him in his place, keeps putting him, just like knocking him down, putting him lower and lower and lower. Let's just read a couple of them, verse 2. 38, 2. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Watch this. Who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? So the next time you're arguing with God, that's kind of what he's probably thinking. What are you talking about? You don't know what you're talking about. Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and then you instruct me, big man. You tell me the way it is. You tell me the truth. You tell me the way I ought to be doing stuff. Do you see that? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? What's the answer? Uh, I didn't exist. I hadn't been created by you yet. And then he just goes on and on and on and on for two chapters. So after about a 100 or so rhetorical questions, occasionally a statement like uh, that just also puts Job in his place. Then we come to chapter 40. Okay, good. Job's got it now. You can back off, God. Take it easy here. I got it. Watch chapter 40. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder? You, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Whoa, behold, I am insignificant. That means I used to think I was big, now I realize how small I am. What can I reply to you? I I can't answer. I, I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I've spoken, I opened my mouth once, but I'm not going to answer. I I said way too much, twice, but I'm going to add no more. So what should God do now? Shouldn't God just say, good, okay, good boy, good boy, you're in your place now. It's not what God does. He's not done with Job yet. Verse 6, then the Lord answered Job out of the storm, and he just keeps going. And he says, now gird up the loins like a man. I will ask you, and you will instruct me. Here we go for round two. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me so that you may be justified? By making all kinds of arguments. Well, yeah, but that's not fair. You're wrong, God. He said, are you really going to do that? Do you have an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? The answer to all those are no, no, no. You're God, I'm not. It goes on and on and on for another two chapters. Now go to 42. We're almost done. Chapter 42. Then, when God was done with Job, Job answered the Lord and said, Ooh, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I do not understand, I said too much, things too wonderful for me, things which I do not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. He's kind of quoting God there. He says, I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. And so God got him to where... He needed to be. Now, you and I don't typically experience God just grilling us for chapters at a time. What we do is, what? How, 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 how can we get to this place that Job gets to? I think part of it is just we listen to Romans chapter 9 get preached. And we do our devotions every day and we read the Bible and then we see who God is and then we look at the circumstances of our life that we're struggling through every day and we apply those truths to that and then we learn by his loving discipline to just be humble before him and to let him be God. And and there's a little bit more we're going to get to in Romans 9, but just let's, let's wrap up Job. So in verses 7 through 9, he then he takes it to the friends. And then in, from verses 10 through 17, <clears throat> we see that the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. The Lord increased everything that he had before. He gave him double that. All his brothers and sisters, now there's just one more thing you've got to see in here. Buckle up, right? Gird up your loins. Listen carefully to this. This is going to be hard to accept. But this is what the Bible teaches. This is what Paul saying in Romans 9. This is what we're reading in Job. Watch this. Go to verse 11. All his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him. They ate bread with him in his house. They consoled him. They comforted him for, watch this, for all the evil that who brought upon him. You ready for that one? The evil that God brought upon him. In the first chapter, we see that God, we want to say, he allowed it, he gave permission, he just allowed it. God wouldn't, this says, by allowing it, right? He brought it on them. He brought it on Job. Yeah, but then that means God's responsible. No, whoa, who are you, oh man? to answer back to God, as soon as we start going to that objecting place where it's, yeah, but then, then, that's not fair, the answer is, where were you? Who do you think you are? Stop. Be quiet. Get out of the fog. Go back down. You, you delved in a little too far. Go back. Get down to where everything is clear. He teaches that, yeah, he's absolutely sovereign, but he also teaches that I'm absolutely responsible. That's what I experience day by day. That's life. It just is. But don't you start answering back to God. Just accept it. And and let's go back to Romans now, and I'll, I'll really hone in on that as we close. Let's look at the profound explanation that we have in Romans nine, twenty three, and twenty four. This is the answer. This is all we're gonna get. So we'll try to understand it a little bit. The profound explanation is this. Look at verse 23 and 24. And he did so in order that, he, he displayed his wrath toward Pharaoh, he did so in order that he might make known, watch this, he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. Who is that? You. Me. Church. The church. The the. Israel of God, the people of God. That is why he has done all this, in order to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. That's back in verse uh, chapter 8, verse 29. He chose us, he foreknew us, he called us, he predestined us, he... Uh, justified us and he even glorified us the day will come when jesus returns and you'll be raised from the dead and your body will be glorified like jesus glorified body and on that day it will be evident to all of creation the riches of god's glory as he pours it out upon his vessels of mercy us that's the ultimate purpose and that's why we learn to say what it's for god's glory The purpose is for his glory. It's the only reason he made anything. It's the only reason he made you. It's the reason he sent Jesus to die on the cross. All of it is for the ultimate purpose of one day him, the revelation of his glory. That's the only right answer. So apparently in God's mind, I left some scriptures there we don't have time to dig into, but you can look at some of these scriptures that support that. So I'll close with this. Apparently in God's mind, the revelation of his glory is best achieved by declaring his power, spreading his name throughout the world in the church, through the church, displaying his wrath on vessels that he has prepared beforehand for destruction. That's God is God. And what we need to do, I have two pastoral uh, scripture verses to share with you. As soon as you entertain the human objection and you say, that's not fair, the answer is what? Yes, it is. And then you go, okay, a deeper level. Then if that's fair, then... How can you hold any how can you do that to Pharaoh? How can you do that to whoever? How can you do that? That's wrong. As soon as you entertain that, here are two scripture passages for you. The first one is Colossians chapter 3 verse 15. Colossians 3:15 says this: because when you go to that place, you're not going to be at peace. You're going to feel upset. You're going to feel a little bit angry at God. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you're going to defend God and you're going to get in an argument with your friend or your spouse or somebody and they're going to be saying, yeah, but that's not fair. Oh, yes, it is fair. Let me, let's go to Job. And you get into that discussion. As soon as you do that, you're not going to have peace. I've been there many, many, many times. I've argued this with people. And I haven't, like I said, I haven't done it great all the time, but I'm always upset. I'm always like, I said too much, or I didn't say it right. As soon as you go there, let the peace of Christ umpire in your hearts. Colossians 3.15. When the Holy Spirit blows his whistle and says, Whoa, 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 slow down here. You need to remember Romans chapter 9. You need to remember Job. You need to remember that the divine correction that we're learning right here. We, you need to remember what the word says about this logical illustration that we are the clay, we're not the potter. We've Just, just remember that. And remember the illustration of the clouds and just get out of that discussion really gently and really peacefully and say, ah, I can't explain it. I just know what the Bible teaches about God and he teaches that he is absolutely sovereign and he teaches that he holds people responsible for their own sin. How they fit together, I don't know. So you humble yourself. Now and that leads us to our next passage, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. I'll leave you with this. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he will exalt you at the proper time. Now that causes some anxiety. Casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. He loves you. Christians, why did he choose me? Because he's God. Why did he choose you? If you believe today, that means he chose you. Enjoy it. Don't try to figure it all out. That's his job. Yeah, but why didn't he choose so-and-so? If that so-and-so is still alive, you don't know whether he chose them or not. So you just live in such a way that you might lead so-and-so to Christ. And you keep praying because you have no idea. We have no idea who's chosen and who isn't chosen. So we just pray for them and we witness to them and we try to live, it, live out in such a way that we declare his glory and we show his glory and we proclaim his excellencies. That's all that we are supposed to do. That's what God created us for. And then one day, as he lavishes his grace upon us in our glorified state, we are just going to sit and bask in the inheritance with Christ and the glory of God forever and ever and ever. So will you bow your heads with me? There's a higher purpose for all this. And that higher purpose is God's own glory. If you accept that, you will have peace. And you'll have productivity in your life. You'll know why you're here. You'll know who you are. You'll know what God wants to do in your life and through you. So let's bow together. Humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Just wait for him to exalt us at the proper time. And then cast all our questions and our anxieties upon him because he cares for you.